0: This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can help by donating at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm joined today by two stars of med Twitter, Dr. and Lady Flecken also known as Will and Kristen Flannery. Will is an ophthalmologist who has improbably, but very successfully popularized a term from German ophthalmology as his online pseudonym. And while this pair will need no introduction to anyone who follows medical social media, I'm speaking to them today as a real-life couple who has faced serious health challenges early in their lives. So, Will, one of the myths that I'm trying to puncture as an oncologist is that cancer is a disease Of senescence, a disease exclusively of aging. And I'll use my own clinic as an example to start. So I treat exclusively gastrointestinal cancer and I practice in the youngest state in the nation, which is Utah, where the median age is 30. And the median age of my patients is 68. And yet, one in seven of them is under the age of 50, which is where we traditionally start screening for, say, colorectal cancer. And the demography is shifting where, as of this year, The recommended age of first screening for average risk individuals is down to 45, but younger even than that are the adolescent and young adult population, what we call the AYAs, defined in the U.S. as people affected by cancer between age 15 and 39. And that's where I wanted to start with you. One of the classic AYA cancers is testicular cancer. Uh, And if you don't mind my asking, I was wondering if you could tell us about your first encounter with this disease.
1: Yeah. So I was a med student. I was early in my fourth year in med school. I woke up one morning and I felt a lump in my testicle. I was 20 oh maybe 25. I was only a med student, but I, I still I, I knew that my testicle wasn't supposed to try to multiply. So something was wrong. I went in to the uh, campus health center and it didn't take long fortunately, it's a pretty straightforward thing to diagnose. And so I got an ultrasound and the diagnosis was pretty evident. And you had you know,
2: surgery that day.
1: Was it? It was the it same was day. They
2: took you yeah. An ultrasound yeah. yeah. So they,
1: they didn't waste any time. And fortunately, I didn't have to have any additional treatment after that. It was a fairly significant thing because, you know, when you're in your 20s, you know, you, you just have this feeling of invincibility, right? Like yeah. Like nothing's going to hurt you. And then all of a sudden, this, uh, something like this just kind of throws your world upside down.
0: Can I ask, you know, you, you obviously had this very quick sequence of events where you went from diagnosis to curative surgery. Were you told at all that time that your other testicle would be at risk? Did they give you statistics? What, what were you told at that, at that moment?
1: I may have been told that there was a possibility that I was at a slightly increased chance of having it in the other testicle, but I wasn't really thinking about that. And it was kind of the same story. It was like four years later when the same thing happened. And I was right, like, you right. got to be kidding me. There's no way that I, I won the lottery twice here. But no money. I didn't get any money. It was just all bad. <laughs> this is a bad lottery.
2: Yes. And
1: I did some reading on my own when I did have that second diagnosis and realizing I think it's something like one to two percent of testicular yeah. cancer survivors can get it in the other testicle.
2: The first thing people think about is, oh, it it just it spread, it came back. It did not spread, it did not come back. It was a completely separate second occurrence.
0: Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, we call that second primary. And you know, if I would met you guys after Will's first diagnosis, I would have quoted you the same very low um single-digit percentage chance of that happening. And it, it kind of shows you the the pitfalls of of taking statistics broadly and applying them to any individual. You know, I struggle a lot with how to translate numbers in, in my practice and, you know, quote patients, things I've derived from the literature and studies. And one of my patients said to me once, and it was so plain and beautiful, he said, Doc, I don't care what number you give me. For me, it's either 0% or it's 100%. And he was absolutely right about that, about that binary. I have to ask, because it's one of the sort of domains that we think about a lot in AYA oncology. Were you counseled at all about fertility after your first diagnosis?
1: After the first one, the thinking was, "Oh, I still have one testicle, mm-hmm. so it, it wouldn't be an issue." Looking back on it, though, you know, I didn't get a lot of information about potential hormonal changes. I was basically told uh, you can function just fine, Definitely. you know, no issues. Looking back on it, I think I had low testosterone for quite a while. So there's some of that kind of longer term information that I kind of glossed over and I I didn't feel like I got a full picture knowing what I know now.
0: I say this only to reassure our audience and maybe a little bit you in retrospect. I think it's increasingly becoming a part of our training. I know in fellowship, I was taught to always think about fertility preservation, partly actually because my faculty were maybe a little reluctant to address it. I quite vividly remember I was on an acute leukemia service Uh, my first year of fellowship with a very wonderful and brilliant, but extremely shy Irish oncologist. And the last thing she wanted to deal with was reproductive health. So we had this young man come in in blast crisis, and she was eminently capable of handling that, but she did not want to talk about a sperm collection. So she kind of, you know, whispered in in my ear, you know, Dr. Lewis, would you mind sort of taking care of that for me? And so, you know, I got the... um, Apparatus moving, that's not a, not a euphemism, and, and got the sperm collection done. And then for the rest of my three years there, I was her go to guy. I bring it up not to be funny, but quite the opposite. I think it's an underappreciated aspect of AY care that actually separates it from um, maybe some of the, the um, elder aspects of oncology, but a really important one to address and one that frankly is often glossed over. So you're quite literally famous for your sense of humor. Am I accurate in, in thinking or reading that, that your comedy was a coping mechanism for you? Will?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what I've always done. Um, You know, whenever faced with a, a difficult situation, I kind of turned to sarcasm or humor. And I'd been doing stand-up comedy for, uh, since high school. So it was something that I was familiar with. And when I got into med school, I started to move away from standup comedy because I, well, we had a kid and I was in med school and so yeah. the life was a little bit busy. And so I just didn't have the time for the late night, uh, you know, comedy sets. And and then whenever this diagnosis happened, it kind of like, I, I just felt that urge to, to go back and kind of address this and deal with this and, in, in in any way I could. And for me, you know, that's my main defense mechanism is going out there and telling jokes and, processing it in the best way I knew how
2: he made a lot of really dark jokes about <laughs> cancer that people weren't sure if they were like allowed to laugh at yeah
1: but they uh I, I guess it, it, it took a lot of ball to get did. out there <laughs> and, and and tell those jokes but um it, it helped me it really did and yep. it uh it got me it really got me jump-started back into comedy
0: I think you're the the funniest doctor I know and it's a real gift that you share your humor with the rest of us. And I'm actually glad it, it's helpful for you too. I wanted to ask you in the wake of your cancer diagnosis, did you find any support groups or or like-minded peers? And I ask this because you have a, a huge platform. And on Twitter at least, I'm always fascinated by what people have as their pinned tweet. So that's the you know, the evergreen item at the very top of their feed. It's my sense of what's really important to them what's the constant amidst all the ephemera and you have a pin tweet that advertises first descent and I was wondering if you could tell us about that
1: well it's uh I really owe a lot to Kristen here for uh, just turning me on to first descents. it was after my
2: the second, second one the second one was a lot harder emotionally for both of us yeah uh, for several reasons but that we were in the pre-op room waiting for him to go back and I could just tell you know he had been down about it he was Trying to keep a you know his chin up, but it was a bummer. Um, and knowing him as well as I do, he's not the support group kind of guy. He's not you know he doesn't want to talk about himself. He doesn't like talking about emotions or you know I am a proactive, logistical kind of a person. That's what helps me feel more in control of a situation. Yeah. So I was googling what we might be able to do for him once he got out of surgery and was recovered and. And I found first descendants and thought that would be perfect because there's no forced interaction. There's no, you know, support group therapy kind of a feel to it. It's just people who have been affected by cancer as adolescents or young adults go on outdoor adventure trips. And they do things like climbing, rock climbing and kayaking and hiking and surfing and the idea is that when you get cancer at such a young age, it sort of makes you lose faith in your body and you, you, know, you feel kind of betrayed yes. by this thing that's supposed to still be functioning well. And so it just kind of helps them build that confidence back in their body and then puts them in close contact with other people going through the same things they're going through. And so they just naturally start to develop some of those connections and conversations and it's, it's a more organic support group I would say than just sitting in a circle and talking or something
1: yeah because because you know c- cancer cancer in your 20s is a pretty isolating experience you know because you do you, you spend so much time in waiting rooms and, and you look around and oh, you mostly yeah. see people in their 60s 70s 80s and I'll see a lot of people that look like you that are your age, and
2: um, and you see the same people represented in the the materials, you know, the brochures you go home with, and just makes it feel like this should not be happening yeah. to us at this age.
1: And so, first ascent is just a, a way to um, really. Meet people that were that had similar stories to me. Some difficult roads. Some, you know, it's it's. I just got to learn from all these other people that had cancer in the same age range that I did, and hear their stories and what they do to cope. And we shared laughs together and and meals. And like Kristen said, it was a very organic, easy way to develop um, that support that you really lack a lot of uh, whenever you're so young dealing with such a, a difficult diagnosis.
0: And you're right, you know, there's unfortunately such precious time that we have in these encounters that we don't often mention some of these psychosocial aspects of care, which I think are so crucial. And actually, Kristen, that brings me quite nicely to addressing you as um, as a caregiver. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and the reason I, I think you really resonate with me is so I watched my mother take care of my father for the seven years that he had cancer. And I saw that she was eight absolutely vital part of his care. And then now that I'm an oncologist, I have to tell you it's sort of a case of, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. This last year with COVID and visitor restrictions, you know, sometimes my patients come out of their appointments and their chemo infusions or even their hospital admissions by themselves. And I've realized, you know, missing that plus one, you know, we've subtracted a crucial therapeutic ally from the equation. So I, I know you've had more than one health scare with Will. I think you said on another podcast, he's tried to die on you three times between yeah. the two instances of testicular cancer and then what sounds like an absolutely horrific episode of cardiac arrest um, a year ago in May. And Will, I'm so glad you're doing well. So what this is all leading up to Christian, is have you felt acknowledged as a caregiver by, by Will's doctors?
2: The short answer is no. No, I don't feel acknowledged by any. And this stretches across the whole country really east coast midwest west coast um, are the places we live during each of those three major events that he had all very good hospital systems I want to be very clear I have zero complaints with his medical care they've saved his life three times nothing to complain about on that front I don't Think that caregivers, I don't even like the term caregiver exactly. I'm not sure what a better term would be, but it feels limiting. It feels like that is one tiny piece of what those experiences were for me. Like, yes, I had to keep track of when to give him his medication and I had to help him get where he needed to go and keep track of doctor's appointments and whatever, all of those things. I had to write down, it was like 51st dates after his cardiac arrest when he couldn't remember. things for a while. And so I had to write down, you know, the details of what had happened to him and what he has to do now and put it by his bed so he could read it every morning because he would forget. So yes, I, I did have to do the caregiving things, but more than that, I kind of prefer thinking of it as a, a co-patient or a co-survivor yes. because yes. all of those things happened to me too, just not in a physiological sense. I wasn't the, you know, primary patient. But this event was happening to me too. And it was having a lot of not only psychological, but you know, sure, some physiological consequences, there's stress, there's lack of sleep, there's all these things that go along with when you have a medical trauma. But if they even looked me in the eye, while I was in the appointment, if I was with him, they typically did not, they would just speak to him. And, and I don't think they were trying to do any of this or even aware they were doing it, but this is just sort of the implicit biases that we all come to the appointment with. They would just speak to him during the cardiac arrest. I had to make some medical decisions for him. And there was no acknowledgement of the fact that I am in the middle of a of a trauma. I had just given 10 minutes of CPR. I am in shock. And I, you know, in in retrospect, I was surprised that more doctors being doctors don't consider what happens when a person is in shock when they receive news like that across the board with the two times with cancer and the cardiac arrest it just felt like they aren't taking into account my individual situation they're just giving me these averages um they're not taking into account any experience that i am having as part of this whole thing it's all focused on him and and rightly so things should be focused on the patient primarily. It's just that the person coming in with the patient shouldn't be forgotten. They should also be attended to. You know, once you get the patient squared away, let's make sure that person has what they need as well.
0: You know, I love your co-patient terminology. I think that is so beautifully put. You know, we talked about Will's pin tweet about first descent. Yours, your pin tweet is a, a beautiful thread. And um, I'm just going to quote a little bit of it because it it really resonated with me. You said the weirdest thing about being a cancer caregiver is you feel guilty for having a hard time because at least you don't have cancer. Do you have advice to offer to other people who have been in a similar situation to yours?
2: I think we are socialized to put everybody else's needs before our own, to be small, to be quiet, especially as a woman. And my advice is throw all that in the trash can. Like I said, pay attention to the patient. Absolutely. Make sure they are getting the, the medical care that they need and, and the other kinds of care that they need. But you're there too. And, you know, if you're only attending to the patient, you're missing half the equation.
0: Yeah.
2: Not just in terms of, you know, psychological issues or whatnot, but, you know, if I'm not in good shape, if the caregiver's not in good shape, how are they going to... Give care <laughs> to yes. the patient when yes. they are at home.
0: Yeah, ninety-nine percent of which happens outside the office. Exactly right. Exactly
2: right. So, and you know this. This is another great example. Sorry, I keep talking about the cardiac arrest hmm. rather than the cancer, but with his memory issue, it brought a lot to light. They discharged him because of COVID. I couldn't be there. They discharged him and gave him all of the instructions verbally. Oh, I see. Well, he couldn't remember that by the time he got home.
1: (laughs) I don't remember leaving the hospital.
2: So yeah, my advice, speak up for yourself. I am really working to try to make it where the onus is not on the caregivers um, and the patients and the people who have just undergone all of this medical trauma, really trying to generate awareness of these things to advocate for change within hospital systems and, you know, Staffing, I think it's it shouldn't just be on the physicians to do all of this for everybody. I, I do want the physician providing medical care. That's what they are specialized in.
0: Right.
2: But someone should be there, you know, to make sure that the the other people attached to the patient are getting the information they need and the support that they need as well, so that the patient's outcomes can be better and so that their outcomes can be better.
0: So I don't want to sound like a live, laugh, love poster here, but I can only imagine that, I'm asking you, Kristen, because you've had two cancer scares with Will and then one cardiac arrest. And also we should give you due credit. You saved your husband's life that night and your example of administering at-home CPR is absolutely stellar for the rest of us. I imagine this has changed your view on mortality.
2: What a tough one. I feel like that interacts with age too. It certainly did at first, but then also- now you have your hopefully your whole life still in front of you, yeah, but yeah, there is kind of an underlying he's still here, <laughs> you know yeah. underneath all of it.
1: I would say that right afterwards, right after I got home from the hospital there it's just all just relief, you know it's it's uh like wow i'm I'm still here, and then you have these moments where you're playing with your kids or you're you know you're Children do something funny or they say something funny or something really cute and and or you have a nice moment where, you know, you're out with your family and you think I almost wasn't here for this. Like, I can't believe I get to be here. Those types of feelings come very often kind of right kind of after the, you know, in the acute setting. Uh, and then it, it does start to fade a little bit because you get back to normal and, and I feel totally fine. I don't have a constant reminder of what happened other than my ICD that lives right. with me in my right. arm. It does still pop up every now and then, like I'll be going on a run and I find myself by my, you know, alone with nobody and in, within sight of me and I'm Just
0: like, well, Frank.
1: Yeah, like, and so all of a sudden it pops in my head. Oh my God, what happens if I if I have a, an arrest right now? And right. you know, so those things will just come up. Will just pop into your brain and make you think about your mortality a little bit more. But as the farther out I get, comes fewer and farther in between. It kind of affects me. I still just feel very fortunate that she married me.
0: Sounds like it's been um, scary at multiple points, and the fact that you're doing well now will. It's just is wonderful for all of us who get to benefit from your presence. Kristen, can I ask, you know, your husband is is famously funny. Does humor help you too?
2: Yeah, I like to say that he tells jokes and I have a sense of humor. We both have kind of a dark sense of humor, sarcastic. I do enjoy a good pun though, and I think we differ there, but I've never tried to to cultivate it as a coping mechanism, but it's just what my brain does, you yeah. know, it, one of the things that it does in a, in a crisis situation. And then, you know, the contrast between what you expect should be happening and what is actually happening is just yeah. so ridiculous that it's just funny.
0: You mentioned your, your children briefly, and I'm a parent too, and I've had to explain my cancer to my son. How have your kids reacted to all of this?
1: So they, they know that I was sick and I had surgery and it, it's all better. I think the the more challenging thing has been the, the cardiac arrest. Yeah. Uh, that was much more involved. They our oldest daughter was was awake during part of that whole oh thing where yeah, the yeah, first responders, they were both mm-hmm. awake. Mm-hmm. Where the first responders, they were they saw the, you know, the firefighters and paramedics, you know, uh coming in. And and there was a little bit more to the recovery, honestly, for that. Sure. And they they were a little older. I'll let you talk about, you know, what what you told them about yeah well
2: backing up to the cancer first the main way that affects them is we have a male dog now who's not neutered he's a rather <laughs> large dog and so there was a lot of education happening in those first few days about what this body part was that they were unfamiliar with and when i explained that my dog
1: has a pretty large testicles, they're very large, and they just
2: are out there all the time you know he doesn't tuck them away or anything they're just like out the back all the time so there you can't avoid seeing them or talking about them you know when you're a kid very curious yes so explaining that you know male Mammals, at least, you know, many male species have these testicles, and this is what they're for, and just all very biological and medical explanations. And it sort of slowly unfolds for them in an ongoing way yeah. over time. I don't think we're to the end of that process by any means. So it's it's just an ongoing conversation, I think, of understanding what it is. And and our nine year old actually has gotten to the point where a couple months ago she said, you know, we're really lucky to have Daddy. Oh. That had just occurred to her at that yeah. point. You
0: know, yeah. She
2: kind of pieced all that together. So I think that's going to be something that continues throughout their childhood, honestly, until they feel like they've really got their head wrapped around the whole thing.
0: I also admire, I have to say, your sort of um, appropriately direct style of, of parenting. And again, this may sound personal, but I think it's an important aspect of AYA oncology in particular. And that is the financial toxicity of. What you've been through, and well, the reason I bring this up is, you have again brought light to the fact that in the in the wake of your cardiac arrest, a completely unforeseen event, which for some reason you didn't get prior authorization for, you've been dealing with you know bills and appealing with insurance companies, and I have to tell you, this is something that absolutely bedevils young patients. We are in fact working actively on not just health and scientific literacy, but literacy around insurance and what they should pay for and what they shouldn't. And so, I, again, I know it's a personal topic, but I was wondering if you could speak just briefly to what you guys have had to go through together in the aftermath of your, of your cardiac event and what that's been like dealing with payment.
1: It was a, a pretty significant headache for um, about nine months after the event. It's going from getting out of the hospital and you just, you're so happy and you're, everyone's just, we're just like, I can't believe he's alive and he's with us and we're all together and healthy. And then like, like three weeks later, like the bills start coming
0: yes.
1: and it just, it just takes, it takes the wind out of your sails, but they just, they keep coming that you're constantly inundated with, with, with mail and bills. And then, they're, they're coming at different times and, and you're not sure, okay, is this, has this been paid? They're, they're giving me the uh, notice of this is the charges, but they're telling me it's not actually a bill. Yeah. So yeah. when does the bill actually come And and how, so you end up with a stack of paperwork about a foot high. So the, the point is like, it made me realize I, I learned so much about our healthcare system going through it. And I'm a physician. Yes. Like it's a, it's a, it's sh- it was shocking to me how little I really understood about what patients go through. And then I went through it as a patient. And certainly being in healthcare helped me to understand it more rapidly and, and figure out what exactly was going on and what I should and shouldn't have to pay. Yes. Uh, and, and so it, it's just mind boggling that we're making patients who have no healthcare experience go through this where they're having to be on the phone for hours and they don't know who to talk to, or they don't know what words to say. They don't know what to ask for. And then that's what you have to do. None of it is intuitive.
2: And they also don't know that they can challenge it. You know, they're being taken advantage of a lot of the times by the insurance companies. Yeah. They just pay it.
1: I realize. I I think I, I counted it up at some point that if I had just paid every single bill that came my way without fighting it or without questioning it, I would have, paid about 10,000 more than I actually ended up paying. That's what's happening to our patients, right? I mean, they're, they're just, if they're, if they're fortunate enough to be able to pay for it, they're just paying it. And a lot of times they're paying way more than they need to, or they're going to end a bankruptcy because they can't. And it's, it's awful.
0: I was really grateful again to you for your candor in speaking to that. Cancer care is famously not cheap. So again, thank you for, thank you for addressing that as a couple. Well, I'll just say very briefly as an oncologist and for the patients that are listening to this, I, I have patients and I encourage them to do this. If they get a charge uh, on a bill that doesn't make sense to them, I ask them to bring it to me. And then, Will, as you said, there's a, there's a specialized vocabulary and we try to get to the bottom of it. And it really is the system is um, easier to navigate if you're a healthcare professional. Um, and, and Will, you're right. You and I come from the privileged position of dealing with it as patients, but also as, as trained docs. And it's still, Byzantine and and hard to navigate.
2: I would love to see a world where the system was patient and family centered, and every policy and every decision that is made is run through that filter of how does this end up affecting patients, not just their medical care, but their life, because patients are people, not cases, and they're multidimensional and complex, and they have a lot of different areas in their life that this. You know illness or or whatever it is that has brought them to you that that affects, so I always just try to encourage people to remember that and to to start making changes in policy or even just within your own practice if that's all you have control over.
0: Well, I'll let you have the last word.
1: Just pay attention to who you're marrying <laughs> um, <laughs> i'd I'd recommend not if you're single out there. All right, uh, uh, make sure that whoever you get involved with is uh, certified in CPR. I'm not. It should be on every dating profile. It's, it's very important. Now, you're not, but I, I lucked out because she's a superhero. So a,
0: your wife is amazing. Kristen, I heard you used uh, Staying Alive from the Bee Gees. Is that right?
1: I did, yeah. I,
2: I had <laughs> learned that at one point a million years ago, um, that that song has the correct beat. So yeah, I was, I was using that and just giving it everything I had. <laughs> I was like, you're not leaving me here with these children <laughs> the garbage that we just locked down last month. Like, no, it's not happening. Yeah,
0: back here. Well, listen, I am such a fan of you both. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sustaining us with um, good humor during the pandemic. I want to thank you both uh, for sharing yourselves quite, quite deeply, actually, um, with our audience today. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online?
1: Sure. I'm Dr. Glockham It's spelled like it sounds easy. <laughs> At D. Glockham Flecken. You'll find it. It's just, just type glaucoma. I'll come up uh, on Twitter and on TikTok. Uh, and then, um, yeah. Yeah, There's and some,
2: I'm L. Glockham Flecken for Lady Glockham Flecken um, on Twitter.
1: Wonderful.
0: And you, you two together are, in my mind, the power couple uh, on Med Twitter. Um, and again, thanks for thanks for all you do for our community. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor is as healthy as possible. You can help by making a donation now at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants on this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page at Conquer.org.
2: The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.